Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 171, and today in the show, we're joined by Justin Czar, an Illinois bow hunter and host of bowhunting.com's Bow Hunt or Die web show. And we're talking early season. October hunting tactics, chasing suburban bucks, and much, much more. Alright, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we are joined by our pal and super serious Illinois whitetail hunter, Justin Czar of bowhunting.com and the Bowhunt or Die web show. And in a few minutes here, we're going to get Justin on with us, and I'm hoping we can just dig deep into his plans and strategies for hunting this upcoming month of October. I'm thinking we can probably touch on everything from early season ideas to October lull tips to hunting the pre-rut, and even maybe we even get into the rut phases, because who, who's not looking forward to November? But uh, I want to make sure we dive into all that tree stand placement, trail cameras, and all sorts of good stuff. So along the way, I think Dan and I should be able to chip in a thought or two as well. But speaking of Dan, Mr. <laughs> Co-host, you are the man of the week. Congratulations. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, that is awesome. You got a new healthy mouth to feed. Yep, yep. Yep, and I'm not doing any of the feeding right now. That's all on mama. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, you know, my wife is a champ. Like, I just feel like she was born and designed to have kids because every time uh, we've gone into the hospital, it's been a breeze. There's been no complications, you know, knock on wood. Uh, just very happy with uh, how everything turned out. Um, and I know... Not a lot of people live around the area that I live that may listen to this, but the hospital, Mercy Hospital, where I, I've had all three of my children, have made childbirth and everything just amazing. So shout out to Mercy Hospital if anybody <laughs> anybody <laughs> listens, go have a kid there, man, because they are they're outstanding at what they do. Maybe maybe we'll make the drive out there this February. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a perfect time. So, uh, do you, do you want to share the name for those who haven't seen online yet? 
Yeah, his name is Knox Daniel Johnson, and he's a badass dude. I was going to say, Knox Johnson. He just sounds like he's going to be yeah. trouble. Between that and Mac Johnson, yeah. like you're going to have two tyrants on your hands is what I think. Well, I, I, I wanted to name our second boy a name that would go well with Max. So when they get introduced as like, and new tag team champions of the world, <laughs> you know, Mac and Knox kind of would, they're kind of some badass names. So yeah, no, that, that sounds about right. They, they sound like the types <laughs> of, they sound like the types of kids that would like take a manhole cover and pull it into their apartment. <laughs> <laughs> You know, <laughs> I, I am screwed. You know, that's, they say, you know, anything you do uh, when you're a kid that's, you know, crazy and dumb, your kids are going to do that same shit just so that, you know, it's karma, right? Oh, so, yeah. It's coming back to you, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. So, no doubt about oh it. That's exciting, though, man. I'm very, very happy for you. So glad that everything went well. And and now it's a new phase. So so far, it's been a handful of days. What's it like having three kids? Well, let me tell you what it's like. Okay, so right now we are in a the adjustment phase, right? So we're home. Um, I'm I haven't gone back to work yet. Uh, I am, you know, I, I got some time off. I'm going to spend it here at the house. I'm helping the wife adjust, helping the kids adjust. Um, it is like, and I and I hate to use this reference, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's like. A hurricane is offshore from your house and it's slowly creeping its way to <laughs> your house. You know shit is going to hit the fan really soon, uh-huh. but you're just almost like you're ignoring it because – I mean I've been, I've been through it twice. He's sleeping right now. He's up. He's on a really good schedule, but in, an, in two, three weeks when he starts – he's going to start crying more. He's going to start – and that brings stress. And then the kids, it's just like this this blender of love and hate all in one <laughs> one, one little compartment. And it's it's just it is it is going to get crazy. Oh man. But I'm well, ready for it. Yeah, you know what you're getting into a little bit at least. Yep. At this age, you can start ignoring kids. A little bit more. You can start, hey, uh, I'm, I'm mad. I want, Matt took a toy from me, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here. Here's the iPad. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like. So that's the trick. <laughs> right. Kid, kids are kind of like junkies. So <laughs> they, they want all these things. And then you're just like, okay, well, here. here just, t- just here's, here's a fix. Go in, go in the room. Lock yourself in the yeah. closet with this. You'll be good. Right. Absolutely. Well, this is good advice for me, Dan. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I'm I'm sure I give horrible parenting parenting advice. <laughs> I've got some I've got some baby related news too. Okay. Uh oh. We had we had our ultrasound. Okay. And how many weeks? Uh, we're just over twenty weeks now. Okay. So did you find out? We found out. Are you going to share it? I am going to share it. We're oh, not boy. we're not the type for surprises and stuff. So yeah, man. We have a baby human on the way. So okay. very excited about that. <laughs> That's great news. <laughs> yes. It is a human. It has it has legs and arms and a head and it is a boy. Uh oh. We got a little baby boy Kenyon coming in February. So That's crazy, man. Yeah. You think it will be born with a sweet goatee? <laughs> it wouldn't take much for him to match his old man's goatee, so it's quite possible. Well, that's awesome. So, yeah, obviously, cool. obviously, as a 
father having a son is a big strong moment was was your wife like did she which would did she kind of want a girl or was she just like as long as it's happy yeah i think we we were both like as long as it's healthy we're okay with whatever mm-hmm. um although you know i think my wife might have been just as excited about it being a boy I don't know. She's she's a little bit tomboyish herself. She's not like super super girly girly. I mean, she likes all the outdoorsy stuff that I do. Um, but I think whether we had a boy or a girl, that child would probably go and do the same things. At least because that's what we're doing at first. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I'm pumped. It's exciting. I, I was the last Kenyan in my family, so I the responsibility to continue the bloodline was on me. That's so a big. Like, that's a big responsibility. Yeah. So I feel like I've achieved that. Hopefully, here with uh, with the little guy. So yeah, real excited. And the empire, you know, the the wired hunt empire can continue. <laughs> yeah, we'll pass this on to him in twenty years. Mm-hmm. See what he can do with it. So so yeah, man, that was exciting, and it was just cool that we could see the baby, and um, you know, see that it was healthy and moving around, and that was pretty wild. And then at the same time, like the last couple of days, now we're starting to feel him too. So oh, yeah. I can feel him like kicking and stuff on Kylie's belly, which is kind of neat. So yeah, lots of exciting stuff. And, um, you know, there's that whole opening day of bow hunting season coming up too. So I know, I know. Are you pumped for that? Or like, like for me, I'm to be honest, I have so many other things going on in my life right now that I just have made up the decision mentally. I may go Sunday. I may not, but, uh, I've just kind of, I'm I'm going more with the flow. Like if I can get out, you know, I can get out early season, but I'm not, I really don't care. You know, I want to, but I don't care if I, if I miss it, you know, I'm kind of put all my apples in one basket for the rut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and given your circumstances, that seems like a good idea. Just keep expectations low, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make up for you on the excitement level because I'm at like a level 13 excitement right now. Okay. Really, okay. really, like really that. pumped. I mean, I've been spending like every night that there's not like every, <laughs> every night that I've been home, um, where I haven't been like leaving the house for an event or taking, doing something with Kylie. Um, I've been going out to near one of my hunting properties and glassing, trying to get eyes on bucks and stuff. So I've been sitting out doing a lot of, doing a lot of glass time and studying trail camera pictures and I'm obsessively already checking the weather forecast and right I think I got my plan for opening day in the second day and uh man I'm just ready for it to get here right um, absolutely so yeah dude so are you going to are you going to just go with the weather this year or are you going to you know go out and and grind right away yeah, so I mean, it, I'm going to be doing a lot of hunting, but targeting Holyfield at first is going to be a, a day or two kind of thing. We do have good weather in the forecast, relatively good weather. Yeah. It's been like in the mid-high 80s, even yeah. into the 90s over the last week for us, but in a couple days, we're getting a cold front hitting, um, so it's going to be about three days before opening day that cold front's really going to be hitting hard, and temps are going to drop down to the 60s. Um, you know, like low sixties, high fifties. So like a 20 degree or so drop. So I think that's going to be good in general. I wish that opening day was like Thursday. So we could be hunting the day of the cold front or the day after. Yeah. But so we're not going to get the very best movement, but I think it'll, it'll still certainly be better than it was, you know, this past week. 
So Sunday night, I'm going to get in there and hunt one of those core spots that I've been hunting Holyfield where I've had a lot of those encounters with him. Um, and I've got this year, you know, you there's this one spot that I hunted a lot for him. And I had like the, the two times I've passed on him, um, the three times sort of, uh, we're all in this one little food plot core area. And I've got a tree stand set up for like a north or northwest or northeast wind. And then I have uh, a ground blind that I put in last year that I had set up for southerly winds. I replaced that ground blind with a hay bale blind um, this oh. year because both basically I just wanted more room. That that ground blind I used last year was to pop up, and it just was not enough room for me to be in there comfortably with my tripod to film and for me to be able to draw back and everything. So the hay bale is much bigger, just much better structure for it. Um, and that's tucked in there super nice because I, I put it right inside of like my food plot screen, and then that screen has grown up all around it. So it's basically completely covered on three sides, and then just in the front, I've cut down the the cover, so I got shooting lanes. Um, but it's very well secluded in there, and it already, it looks like a hay bale anyway, so they're not they're not worried about it at all. And uh, we've got southerly winds in the forecast for nice. for Monday and Sunday, so that can be good ish. Um, when I've studied all of his movement patterns and stuff, like all of the daytime trail camera pictures I have of him up here in the front are with like a south or southwest wind. Um, and I'm going to have a little bit of that. I'm going to have like east, south, east, uh, southeast-ish winds, I guess, on Sunday, and then south winds on Monday. Um, so I'm going to get in there and hunt that ground blind. It's it's going to be great from an access standpoint. I can walk through a standing cornfield far away from where these deer are bedded drop into this creek, walk the creek all the way to the back of the blind, and then just pop right in the blind. So I feel good about getting in there. Um, and then I think to get out, I'm going to try to convince my wife to drive the four-wheeler out to this area and uh, and pick me up there so I'm not walking around after dark spooking anything. Nice. And uh, nice. I'm going to do two hunts like that, see how that goes. And then I think then I'm going to stay out. I'm going to stay out completely for weeks. Um, just because, you know, unless unless there's something that's like, He's showing up over and over and over and over again in daylight. Um, I'm not going to push it like I did last year. I kept, you know, we talked about it before. We kept yeah. getting these tiny cold fronts every weekend, and I was like, well, I should try it because there's going to be a 10-degree 10, 10 temperature drop. I'm not doing that this year. Um, right. But I've got, you know, a couple public spots down here that I'm going to be trying out and going to go up north the weekend following opening day up to our northern Michigan property. And I'm really excited about that. So going to spend like four days up there hunting and hunt a mixture of our little 40-acre piece. And then there's a bunch of public surrounding it. So I'm going to do some scouting and hang and hunt some some spots out there, I think, too. And that's kind of my game plan for early October through the mid-October time period is, is balance between northern Michigan and the public land down here. Um, and then we'll see about Ohio. I'm undecided on if we're going to take a quick trip to Ohio early or not. Traditionally, historically, hasn't been very good early season for us. I had we've had one good mature buck encounter in all the years we've been going down there in the early season, and that was it. Um, so kind of up in the air on that stuff, but I don't know. I think there's a there's a chance for some opening day or second day success here in Michigan, but I, I would not say my confidence level is super high. Um, because you're gonna I, kill a doe? You no, think? no, not not here. Just because I don't want to shoot something and be walking all over the property, you know tracking right. all over the place. I just want to keep I want to keep my impact absolutely to as close to zero as I can until I kill Holyfield or if he right. disappears. 
Right. But if that happens, whenever if I kill him or if someone else kills him, um, then it'll just be Doe Patrol for the rest of the season probably and, and hit it really hard. But um, but what do you got going over there, Dan? <laughs> oh, I dropped something. <laughs> but uh, I was just going to say he hasn't been showing up. I haven't seen him yet. I've glassed this area quite a bit. Still haven't seen him. Um, I have him on camera three times in the last month. That's it. Um, yeah. one, two of those were in daylight. Um, now last year you were, you were battling the same kind of thoughts because wasn't he showing up like for a, for a long period of time, really close to daylight in the evenings or, uh, right towards the tail end of the morning on your cameras and you had already gone in there several times to hunt him and you just were getting really worried about, you know, spooking him off the, off your property. Yeah. I mean, I think like in early and mid October there was, you know, yeah, I was, I'd seen him a couple times in daylight, like right at the end of daylight when I was glassing from my little scouting area. Um, I'd gotten a few pictures that were right in the edge of daylight and stuff. So you, you, it had some like signs pointing to, yes, you should go in there and hunt him. But then, because of the way this property lays out, there's only a couple spots I could actually hunt him. So, right. yeah, that challenge was, how much can I get away with when I'm pounding the same spots over and over again? Right. Um, right. And it's hard to say if I made a mistake or not, because I, I did that, I hunted over and over again, and still October 24th, after I'd hunted you know, several weekends in a row for him, in the same spot again, October 24th, I had a shot at him. Um, yeah. you know, at 40 yards. And then I almost had a shot at him the next day. So, you know, I kept seeing him, but it was after that, then like the 26th through like the eighth, then I saw him, but he wasn't coming over to my side. I was seeing him staying back in cover. So I wonder right. if at that point, if he'd kind of caught on to what was going on and knew that he should stay back in that cover till after dark. So yeah. my hope is this year, other than these first couple hunts to stay out completely until that late October time for him again. And then hopefully then instead of like one chance, Maybe I'll have a week worth of you know opportunities where he might be willing to to stray over towards me during daylight. So that's that's at least a high level plan. I don't right. know. Um, we'll see. I'm just I excited. Just like I don't know about you, but I like to put early season plans together as well. And then as soon as opening day hits, it's all out the window, right? And you're, <laughs> yeah. you're doing something completely different than what you originally planned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You just got to kind of go with the flow, right? right? See what see what's happening, observe, study what whatever new patterns are emerging and, and make an adjustment. So, yeah, dude, um, I'm fired up, fired yeah. up. And hopefully next week, maybe if the stars align and I get super lucky and that weather's good, maybe next week I will have the happiest story of all time for you. Hey, man, I hope so. I'll Me too. It, I, I want I want a phone call. I want to be on your phone call list oh, when sure. <laughs> if you if you kill him. You know what I mean? Like yep. first is obviously the wife. Yep. Uh, second, I don't care your dad. Maybe uh, you know then maybe <laughs> if I'm top ten, that'd be awesome. Oh, you're definitely top ten, dude. Okay, perfect. You'll, you'll get a you'll get an in the field call like that shaky voice, loud whisper type <laughs> phone call. You know, damn it, I just I did, did it. it. I just I did, did it. it. <laughs> I sure hope. I love I love those calls. Oh, those are the best. Those are the absolute best. I am so ready for like a blood trail and for a phone call from a buddy or like a BBD text message right. and like everyone gets together and drinks a beer and goes hiking out in the woods. Like I'm so just pumped out of my mind for it. So right. Absolutely. 
<sighs> it's a great time of year, my friend. It's a great time of year. But uh, we should probably we should probably bring Justin on because um, he's sitting around waiting for us, and uh, maybe he can BS with us a little bit about how excited we are too. So let's take a quick break here for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear, and then we'll bring our pal Justin Czar on the line. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Alex Comstock of North Dakota, and Alex is going to be telling us about a special early season hunt with his whitetail mentor. So it was about two weeks ago, and uh, I was sitting over a bean field with my buddy Drew, who is kind of like my hunting mentor per se. He's the one who got me started into this uh, whole madness when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And uh, we have never sat together before, so we had scouted this new spot and found this pond that was uh, right on the edge of this bean field and decided it would be a good time to sit it, being that it was a really warm day. And uh, I thought it would be a cool opportunity to sit with him. So I uh, decided to sit with him and film that night, and we ended up having an encounter with a big four- or five-year-old mature buck. Um, and he kind of popped out of this bean field about three or 400 yards away and was working his way right at us. And he got into about 80 to 100 yards and picked his head up and started staring at this road because we were hunting fairly close to a road and uh, just stood at the ro- or stared at the road for about 10 minutes or so and then just took off and headed out of our life. And uh, even though it was kind of an unsuccessful hunt, it was a really cool opportunity to be able to be sitting with, you know, my good friend and being able to get it all on film and being at the one that he's got me into hunting. It was uh, just a really cool opportunity and one of my favorite nights of hunting, uh, probably of my life. On Alex's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's Equinox system. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, we've got Mr. Justin Zara now on the line with us. How are you, buddy? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? We're good. Me and Dan have just been talking about uh, how excited we are for our opening day, um, which is coming up here in a few days. But you guys have been going at it for a while over by you up in, well, Wisconsin's well, going to be no, the season, no. right? Not in Illinois. Yeah. yeah, Illinois. So I'm the same as you guys. I'm October 1st. I have not been in the woods with a bow in my hand yet. A lot of the guys on our team have. I am not one of those fortunate individuals. So yeah. much like the two of you, I'm, I'm kind of chomping at the bit to be able to get out in the woods and shoot at something here pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. So where, where did Todd kill his buck? Was that Wisconsin? That was Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, where we're located here, we're in the suburbs of Chicago. So we're actually really close to the Wisconsin line, maybe half hour to Wisconsin. Uh, Todd actually owns a little bit of property up in green Lake County. So he's about, uh, I don't know, two and a half, three hours North of here. Uh, so he killed his buck on opening day up, up in Wisconsin. Uh, he usually likes to, I mean, they open a couple weeks early, so he likes to get up there. You know, that first weekend or two is usually just, you know, kind of a doe mission. But, uh, you know, he was fortunate enough to to get a good buck finally on opening day. And then a couple days later, he left, and he's currently in Wyoming. Uh, and actually, he shot an elk uh, yesterday. So I think oh, really? he's coming home today or tomorrow. Yeah. Nice. So he's had, off to a heck of a start, I would say, for him. Man, sounds like it. The pressure's on you now, Justin. No kidding, right? <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> so he's, he's killed. He's got an antelope, an elk, and a whitetail all under his belt. And it's not even October for first yet. I haven't even geez. been hunting. So good lord. 
So uh, for, for those maybe that, who don't know who Todd is or maybe who you are, can you just give us a quick like 101 on what you guys are doing over at bowhunting.com, or bowhunting.com and bowhunter.die and all that good stuff? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, Todd, when we refer to him as Todd Graff, he's the owner uh, of bowhunting.com. You know, I've been working for Todd for about, I want to say, 14 years now. Uh, him and I have been working together. Uh, you know, when I first started working for him, you know, Todd owns an IT consulting company and, and a web development company. So that's what we do. Like, that's our real jobs. Right? I build websites for people, a lot of, a lot of people in the hunting industry. But then, you know, because Todd was a, a pretty smart dude back in the 90s, he bought a bunch of domain names, bowhunting.com being one of them. Uh, so we started that website. I want to say it's been about 10 years ago now, uh, or maybe just shy of 10 years, maybe nine years now. And uh, so we started that website back in the day, um, kind of as just doing some e-commerce stuff. And then we kind of got out of doing e-commerce and we really just focused mostly on information. So, you know, anything and everything you could want to know about bow hunting, we try to have on bowhunting.com, whether it's stories, how-tos, gear reviews. Uh, we do a lot of coverage at the ATA show every year, filming new products. Uh, and then about, oh gosh, I think it's seven years ago now because we're in our eighth season, we decided uh, for some crazy reason to start an online hunting show. We figured we had this awesome platform with bowhunting.com. Uh, so we started our show, which we call Bowhunter Die. We're in our eighth season now. Um, and it's 100% online. So you watch it you know, through the website, through our Roku channel, uh, through YouTube. You can download it through iTunes. We have an Apple TV channel. Uh, and we're actually just getting ready to launch our mobile app here in the next week or so once the nice. fine folks at, at Apple uh, approve that <laughs> and uh, get it pushed out so then guys will be able to you know get notifications right on their phone when a new episode goes live. Uh, so that's kind of our, our spiel and what we do over here at bowhunting.com and, and bowhunter die. That's awesome. Well, you guys really do have one of the best online hunting shows out there. I've always enjoyed it. Um, but I, I've seen sometimes, you know, you guys lots of times before hunt um, on your show, you'll have like a little profile of the hunter talking a little bit about, you know, who this is, what he's doing. And I've heard sure. you, I've seen you sometime listed as Todd's manservant. Is that accurate? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my little joke. I get to uh, I get to we get to make up our little fun facts or our little occupations for our intro. So yeah, that that's kind of what I call it. You know, I get the the glorious title of general manager here, which pretty much means you get to do a little bit of everything. So I pretty much you know run I'd say ninety percent of the day to day operations for you know really three of our businesses: IT consulting, web development, and bowhunting.com. So it keeps me busy here at the office while while Todd's out killing stuff <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> Man, you got the raw end of the deal there. Yeah, everyone thinks working in the hunting industry is great until so you actually have to do the work part. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of raw deals, just before we started recording, uh, yes. you know, we were talking about how Dan just had his third, and you had yes, three kids too. <laughs> how, raw how, deal. That is a raw deal for sure. <laughs> so how how has having three kids impacted your hunting so far? Um, well, I tell you what, we had our third last year smack in the middle of the hunting season. It was October 26th. So that definitely, uh, threw a wrench in my works last year. Uh, I still got to hunt a fair amount. Um, but you know, I, I kept everything local. I didn't really travel at all last year to hunt and at my local spots that I hunt, I just didn't really have the, the caliber of deer I was looking to shoot last year. So I ended up not shooting a buck, uh, shot a couple does last year and that was it. Uh, fortunately now that, you know, we're a year into number three, just about, uh, things have kind of leveled back out in, in a smooth sailing ahead, hopefully. So 
I'm pretty optimistic that I'm going to be able to hunt hunt a fair amount this fall, much to the dismay of my wife, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> she gets to stay home now. She doesn't have to work anymore. So the trade-off was kind of, uh, you do that, and I'm going to go hunt. So I do have a couple trips to Kansas uh, planned for later this fall. And then I have a couple really good bucks that I'm chasing here uh, locally at home in Illinois, finally. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to get this, this show on the road here come October 1st. Have you thought about hiring a babysitter while you're gone to lighten the load? Because I think I'm going to be doing that this year. Yeah. See, I just don't have enough money for that. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I just would be calling in favors to uh, family members. You want to talk about a raw deal? I'll tell you guys this. My, my wife's sister is turning 40 this year. So they decided they want to go on a little girl's weekend. They're going on like a four-day cruise, her sister and some friends. And they planned this for November 2nd through November 6th. That was the date that they picked (laughs) to go on this cruise. So I am flying solo on dad duty for those few days, which unfortunately I don't have much of a leg to stand on because I'm gone in Kansas for like five days immediately before that. And then like another four days if I don't tag out. Uh, pretty soon after that. So I kind of just bit my tongue and said, you know what? It is what it is. Hopefully I have a deer killed. I tell you what, November in Iowa, um, you can drop your kids off at hospitals. I guess it's called like a safe zone or something. And they don't ask really any questions. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like, if you want to give them up permanently, oh. I'm not sure you're allowed to come back later and reclaim them. Oh. <laughs> uh, changed my mind. guys. Sorry, I'm here to, to pick the kids up. That's, that's an interesting plan, Dan. <laughs> I'm going to, at least I'm going to give it a try. Uh, yeah. So I, I plan on calling in favors to, to family members, uh, where I can. Fortunately, the two biggest bucks I'm hunting are, are both local to me, uh, within 15, 20 minute drive of the house, uh, which will make things pretty, pretty nice for this fall. That Just is the kids in the car. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, make sure their iPads are charged up and, uh, I'll be back in a couple hours. Yeah. Dan, Dan was just talking about how he, he, uh, compares his children to junkies and he just provides them their fix when he needs a little alone time. <laughs> right. The iPad. Yeah, it's kind of a fairly accurate statement <laughs> when they're really, really little. It's mostly just food. And then once they get bigger, it becomes iPads yeah. and other things. Well, I've got lots to learn. It seems that's for sure. Yeah, yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> so, so you said you got a couple good local bucks. What's the story on them? Yeah. You know, um, the biggest story I think I get asked the most about um, was, you know, last year, one of the farms that I hunt, uh, I passed on a really great deer. Uh, that a lot of people that watch our show told me I was insane to let him walk by me. But uh, he ended up we ended up picking up both of his sheds. He scored right at about 160 inches. Um, but I knew he was a three year old and I really just wanted to see what was going to happen if he made it to four. Uh, that particular spot is a bow only area. There's no gun hunting. It's a private farm. Uh, there's only two of us that hunt it. It's pretty big. Uh, so I felt like he had a really good opportunity to make it through. Uh, fortunately, he did. Um, and as I suspected, you know, when he went from from two to three, he jumped from probably 125, 130 inches to pushing 160. Um, and then he made another jump from three to four. I'm going to guess him in the high 180s, low 190s this Whoa. year. Um yeah, he's a great deer. I mean, honestly, it's the biggest deer I've ever had an opportunity to to know that I'm hunting uh, in my 25 or so years of hunting now. So I feel pretty fortunate to be able to chase a deer of that caliber. 
Uh, I'd really like to see what he looks like at five or six, but I'm <laughs> not letting him walk by me again. Yeah. If he happens to come by at four years old, uh, I am not that kind of guy that's not going to shoot that deer this year. So, yeah, he's kind of my number one target. Um, and then when I've got another farm that I hunt that's got a really nice – super clean 10 point that's probably going to score in the 160s would be my guess maybe mid to upper 160s as a 10 um so yeah those are those are the two deer that i'm really going to be primarily targeting for this fall what's this stuff like so this is northwest illinois you said so are we getting into like the hills near the mississippi yet or is it flat no no so we're like where i'm here local we're almost like northeast illinois okay um so the the big deer that i'm hunting is in lake county um, which basically extends all the way to Lake Michigan, hence the name. Um, so we're northeast. We do a lot of our hunting in northwestern Illinois. Uh, Todd actually owns a farm out there, and we've got some leases and some other property. So that is the real you know, hilly kind of bluff country uh, right along the Mississippi there. Um, but with these two deer local here at home, one's in Lake County, one's in McHenry County, um, You know, the terrain here is fairly flat, small woodlots um, in between subdivisions and whatever agriculture remains. So it's, you know, it's really suburban hunting, uh, sitting in your tree stand and listening to dogs barking and traffic (laughs) going by. But, you know, when you got a couple really good deer to chase, you know, a lot of times I've been guilty of of leaving to chase the experience, I think more than the deer, uh, because hunting around here doesn't bring with it to me anyways, the same feeling that I get when I go out West or I go up North or I go somewhere where it's more rural. Um, but with three kids at home and two giant bucks to chase, uh, I'm not going really much of anywhere this yeah. year. I'll be going after those deer. Is there anything dramatically different about how you actually have to hunt or how these deer behave in these like suburban areas compared to your western, more rural spots? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, out here, it's a lot of really small woodlots. Um, there's just not a lot of big timber around anymore. So, you know, access is always one of the hardest things of being able to get in somewhere and not, you know, booger all the deer up on your way either in or out. Um, a lot of, there's a misconception out there a lot of times that when you're hunting these suburban deer that they're kind of stupid and they don't care about, about people intruding into their, their land. But I can tell you they're every bit as cautious as any other deer I've ever hunted. Uh, you know, especially when you get some of these older age class bucks. Sure, you can drive around some of these areas that are ultra populated with little forest preserves in them. And yeah, the deer will damn near eat right out of your hand. Um, but in a normal situation, like where I'm at, I mean, believe me, a deer gets downwind you and it's, it's gone no differently than any other deer. Um, and I, I think what makes hunting around here even probably more difficult, uh, is that our deer really don't come out into the open, uh, very much until dark because there's, you're hard pressed to find, a field edge or somewhere that a deer can come out into that can't be seen from a house or a road. Um, and especially a bigger buck, man. I mean, there's just so many people and so much traffic and activity. They, they step out into a field for 30 seconds and there's cars pulled over on the side of the road, you know, looking at them. Uh, so, you know, it makes it difficult because they just, you know, those hunts that you see, you know, when we all watch videos or, you know, where Dan's out in freaking Iowa where there's just giant bucks <laughs> running across a cornfield and you All rattle the to them, they come running in. Like, Shut your mouth. Really happen. So that easy. It doesn't happen here. Shut your mouth. <laughs> Guys, I'm telling you right. God dang it. I tell you, the last, the last, oh man, everybody's like, dude, but you're in Iowa. Dude, but you're in Iowa. 
Dude, I'm not hunting on the same properties that like the Drury's or Lakoski's hunting on, right? I don't you have got like better. I heard you got Dan, better property. Dan, you yeah, can't. You yeah. can't. We, we we don't need to divulge your secrets, but you can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't complain, but it's you know the only difference really between uh, where some some people are hunting and where I hunt is just giant racks. Sure. That's that's really the only difference. The age class, I mean, yeah, that maybe a little bit bump in the age class compared to, you know, Illinois or like Minnesota or Wisconsin, but I'm still hunting on a farm that's not mine. I'm still hunting on a uh, you know, a, it's it's got pressure, you know, it's active. So, sure. I don't know. But Yeah, I mean, it's never easy, right? That's just I mean, me defending myself. Well, there's a huge <laughs> misconception by a ton of people that, you know, Everything you see on, you know, TV, quote unquote, or online or wherever you're watching it these days, you know, that some for some reason, those people are hunting in different situations or scenarios than you are. And in some cases, that's true. But I think the majority of cases, I mean, think about how many people are filming hunts out there. I mean, it's not just the juries and the Lukoskis. I mean, there's plenty of dudes like us out there filming hunts that are just on you know, small little 80, you know, 40 acres, 20 acres, 80 acre pieces that we're sharing with other guys. And we're dealing with the same stuff that everybody else deals with, you know, but there's the right way and the wrong way to hunt it and being smart and guys that are successful on a, on a regular basis doesn't necessarily mean that they have the greatest spot in the world. Sometimes they're just better hunters, you right. know, and, and I've just kind of come to the realization, Hey man, some people are better hunters than I am. That That's okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I, I'm confident in my abilities and what I know how to do, but I'm also not foolish enough to believe that, you know, I'm the greatest hunter that's ever walked the planet earth. Yeah. That's a good perspective to have. Um, it, it probably helps keep the frustration level, maybe one tiny bit of below 10 at all times. So that's right. I, I think so. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> you got to maintain some sort of sanity and you got to set your, your expectations to a realistic level, you know, I can't expect every year to go out and try to, you know, kill a 180 or 190 when most of the time there isn't one there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's probably another huge misconception that people have. And I know that Mark, you've touched on it in a few podcasts, you know, just talking about like, for example, Holyfield, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a deer that just like huge body, you know, but he's just doesn't have the genetics to be a 180 or 190 inch deer, you know, and there's plenty of those deer in Iowa. There's plenty of them in Illinois they're all over the place. You know, I've got uh, a farm that I lease in Northwestern Illinois right now that we probably have eight or 10 bucks on trail camera this summer. I don't think I have one over 140 inches. I got a deer out there. I don't know how old he is, but he's a tank. He's gotta be 300 plus pounds on the hook during the summer. And he's like an 80 inch rack. Really? I mean, it's like, yeah, he's just doesn't have the genetics, you know, it's and it's just, it's just the way it is. So is he a shooter still for you? Uh, I think so. You know, and here in Illinois, we're very fortunate to get, you know, two bucks as a resident. So, you know, I'm not planning on hunting that farm a ton, uh, where I live here and where we hunt here, there's just not a lot of deer in general anymore. You know, we've had CWD now for well over a decade. Um, we have a lot of sharpshooting going on, which I know is kind of a heated debate, um, with hunters, you know, they got signs up all over the place to tell the DNR to stop sharpshooting the deer. So just in general, the, the, the deer numbers around here are down. Uh, so I don't intend on shooting a doe. I don't think on either one of the, my local farms, there's just not a lot of them. Um, so if I want to shoot a doe and get some meat, I really need to, 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 to head out to my lease, which unfortunately is about two hours away. So while I'm out there trying to shoot a doe, uh, you know, if one of these more mature bucks walks by, I'm absolutely going to shoot him. Um, 
I like shooting deer as much as the next guy and I'm not going to hold out, you know, for a, a 160 or better, a good four five, six, seven, eight year old deer walks in front of me. He's getting an arrow flung at him. Okay. Now let's say though, uh, let's say you fill your tag on a, on a buck like that. Yep. Your first tag. You've got your second and final tag, and you still have this 180 running around and this 160 that you've been talking about that you're hoping to see. Now, do you pass on other mature bucks because you want to save that last tag for one of those two, or would you still take your first opportunity to mature buck? I'd probably pass yeah. for one of those two. I mean, I don't need to fill that second tag. You know, if for some reason this big deer happens to elude me, uh, or my buddy Mike that I hunt with or all the cars that are around and make it till five, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'll actually be pretty excited to see what he turns into next year. All right. um, but believe me, I'm going to hunt my ass off and try to kill him this fall to make sure that doesn't happen. But if it does, I'm not going to be mad about it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if I fill that first tag, the second one is, is earmarked most likely for the bigger of the two. Even that 160, I may not even I may not even hunt that farm at all. I may just focus solely on that other buck. Uh, and try to kill him with that second tag. But that would be a great problem to have. I, I guess I'll cross that bridge if and when I get there. Right, right. <laughs> now, you mentioned a second ago the CWD in your area there. Yeah. Um, do you get your deer tested that you kill in that area? Yep, I do. Have you ever yeah, had one come up positive? I have not. Uh, I know a couple folks who have um, in this area. But uh, I personally have not, no. None of mine have tested positive yet. Our infection rate is still pretty low in Illinois, uh, even in what they consider kind of our hot spots where, the, the, you know, the CWD, kind of like the ground zero spot and some of these areas of really high deer densities. Um, you know, our infection rates are probably still sub 10% in adult males, you know, whereas up in Wisconsin, Iowa County, that area, um, you know, you're starting to see 40 to 50% infection rates in adult males that are tested Jeez. up there. So, you know, th that's, th that's the debate, right? I mean, guys don't want the DNR sharpshooting the deer because they want to see more deer, right? We're hunters. When we go out, we want to see deer. And it is frustrating when you go out and you see a deer every second or third or fourth sit. It does make for a long season. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't think there's any question that what the DNR is doing uh, to keep deer numbers in check uh, it's certainly helped slow the spread of the disease. As we all know, there's nothing we're going to do to stop it. Um, but we do need to try to do what we can to, to slow it down. So, I mean, I'm in favor of what the DNR is doing. I believe in it. Uh, there's a lot of hunters out there that don't and will probably be mad at me for saying this. Um, but, I mean, there, there's places out there, you know, in Illinois where there's just simply too many deer, especially in north, northwestern Illinois. Um, they go do aerial surveys with helicopters. And when you've got deer density of... 40 50 60 deer per square mile like there's just too many deer there the dnr wants to go in and thin the numbers out in those specific areas they do aerial surveys they section each county off into zones they do a survey in that zone and see how many deer are in it during the winter when there's snow on the ground then they say we want to shoot x number of deer out of this zone to try to bring the numbers down they try to work with private landowners to say hey can we come in and sharpshoot most of them say no because they're like you know screw you we don't want you coming here and shooting our deer um, they, and then the big thing that hunters always say is, well, why don't you just let us do it? Right. If you're going right. to shoot them, let us do it. Well, in Illinois, we have unlimited doe tags, right? We can shoot as many does as we want with archery equipment. Um, but nobody's out doing that. Right. So everybody says like, well, why don't you just let us do it? But then they don't actually do it. Um, uh, because again, they want to see a lot of deer. So there's not a lot of options 
you know, for the DNR when it comes to to trying to control this. So sharpshooting has, has truly proven to be, I believe, the best option on the table, um, contrary to the, the dismay of a lot of hunters and what they may believe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. You take the good with the bad. We still have some great deer. We have some great hunting. Uh, hopefully at some point in time somebody will find a vaccine or a cure or something. I mean, even if it's 10, 15, 20 years from now, I know they're working on it. So let's just hope that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you there. And it's, it's one of those things like to your point, when it's, when it's a low infection rate, it's easy for people to say, Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's been here, blah, blah, blah. But you know, like you said, up in some of those spots in Wisconsin, where 40% or 50% of bucks have, you know, are positive. What happens when, well, already, I think a lot of people are very hesitant to eat that meat. What happens if someday in the next few years or 10 years or something, it comes to light that there has been a case that has transmitted to humans? Then then I think you have a lot of questions and concerns. And if you can't sure. eat the meat of a deer you kill anymore where you hunt, um, what does that mean for the future of hunting? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know that, I mean, I just listened to you on, on Ranella's podcast here recently. I listen to him a lot. And, you know, I'm always interested in his talks about CWD and, you know, I'm of the belief that, you know, yeah, I mean, should somebody realize that when they eat a CWD positive animal, there is a one in a billionth chance you're going to get sick? Sure. You know, but honestly, I mean, not to be a Debbie Downer here, but any one of us have a better chance of getting, you know, in a car accident on our way to go hunting and get killed from that or get struck by lightning even than we do of contracting cwd from eating a deer that's positive mm-hmm. so uh, you just have to keep everything in perspective like i wouldn't be hesitant to do it um it's it's the, the odds of it happening are virtually zero as of right now they are zero it's never happened yep not right. to say that it can't or won't my bigger concern over you know humans getting infected with it uh is more or less you know what does the hunting industry look like in 10, 15, 20 years, when you start seeing infection rates in adult males, uh, you know, that keep increasing, you know, and, and as we all know, once a deer contracts CWD, it's fatal, they're going to die. Um, so, and a lot of your younger bucks contract it, you know, let's say a year and a half old deer contracts it, and let's say he's dead by the time he's two or three years old. In a lot of cases, he's dying from hunters or natural causes or cars or whatever. But if they start dying from CWD and those deer aren't making it to four or five, six years old, let's face it. I mean, that's kind of what makes the hunting industry go around. We all love meat. We all love venison. That's that's kind of the core of why we hunt, right? But beyond that, we like, we like the thrill of chasing big bucks. Mm-hmm. Big bucks makes hunting go around. And when those big bucks stop existing or exist in such a low number uh, that people can't chase them anymore. What is that? What does that look like for the hunting industry? Does that mean guys start turning towards other hobbies, doing other things, um, which takes money out of the industry, you know, which takes money out of conservation. I mean, there's this kind of whole snowball effect that, you know, we may not see the ramifications of it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, but when all of our kids are our age, what's that landscape going to look like? You know, that's, I'm kind of thinking, you know, bigger picture wise, you know, yeah, it sucks when the DNR shoots some deer and I don't see as many, but I still have the opportunity to go hunt. There's plenty of deer here. I could kill a deer every year, you know, and not have to worry about needing the meat, but what's that going to look like in, in 30, 40 years from now? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think to your point, it's, there's a lot of questions still. And if, if things keep going the way they're going and we don't start finding solutions or if we don't take this seriously, there are some concerning things that could be on the horizon. So I think even though we don't have any answers right now, I think it's just 
let's not pretend this isn't an issue. Let's not put our heads in the sand and just try to pretend everything's okay. Let's actually be serious about it, continue to better understand it, um, and support those organizations or our state agencies that are trying to do their best to get their get their hands on this. I'm going to uh, sure. a symposium in Michigan next week. A CWD symposium is what they're calling it, where they're having experts from all across the country come in and discuss research and different best practices and all this kind of stuff. And I'll be really interested to hear what uh, what they have to share. So um, I'm glad to see yeah. that states like Michigan and, and, and others are trying to be be stay on top of it, I guess would be the best way to put it, and do the sure. best they can. And, and I hope that continues and that, like you said, Justin, hopefully a vaccine or something comes down the line here soon so we don't have a future 20 30 years from now that that's got a lot of big question marks like you said yeah uh, oh and it'd be nice if a lot of hunters would would do more to educate themselves about the disease mm-hmm. um what it is how it's transmitted there's a lot of people out there that just i don't know like there's literally people that think that like this doesn't even exist like it's not even a real thing it's made up it's a government conspiracy or it's of course it's being backed by the insurance companies or all these just crazy conspiracy theories that you know just simply aren't true you know i think that's not even the the average joe who thinks that that's leaders in the industry that think that as well and that's bullshit yeah yeah Yeah, it is it is dan I, i agree with you i mean if people would just take the time to do some research educate themselves you know and and make an informed decision and i guess to open that discussion up i mean that goes for all things in life there's a lot of crap going on in the world right now for better or for worse with social media, there's a lot of people that kind of just fall for stupid headlines and what other stupid people are saying. Mm -hmm. I wish everybody would just kind of stop for a minute, use your own brain, do some research before you make an opinion and then go spouting it off to everybody. Yeah. But that's a, that's a whole nother tangent. We don't have to get into it. Let's talk about, (laughs) let's talk about killing deer. Yeah. Let's talk about something good. Um, I want to hear about, because you kind of intrigued me when you've been talking about your kind of suburban hunting situation there and these couple giant bucks. Um, so what does your early season plan look like getting after one of these two big guys in this kind of scenario? Because we, we actually, I don't think, Dan, we've ever talked to anyone, but maybe one person who's really talked about hunting in that kind of suburban type area. So I'm kind of, sure. I'm curious about what, how you're approaching it, what your plans are this year, and what are like some of the tactics or, or thoughts that are on your mind as you start the season. Right. Well, I think I'm really going to let you guys down here on this. I think you're, <laughs> you're looking for something that's not there because I'll be completely <laughs> frank. I don't have any right now. Um, and for, for a couple different reasons. Um, number one, I've just, because we start October 1st, and I don't know about you guys, but I've never really had any good luck in the first half of October with mature bucks on their feet, uh, at least where I'm at, unless we get a really good cold snap, uh, that first couple days of the season just doesn't seem to happen. looks like we got a cold snap coming like tomorrow, mm-hmm. which is about four or five days too early for, right. for this Sunday being the opener. Uh, so honestly, my plan is to not even really hunt either one of those two deer probably till starting in mid October. Okay. Um, my plan actually is to, is to take my little guy, my five-year-old out with me to sit in a ground blind uh, and try to shoot a doe these first two weekends. I'm going to use some of the warmer weather and the fact that a lot of these the bigger bucks really aren't moving so much, um, or at least I, if they are, I don't know where they're at. Uh, maybe it's because I haven't had the time or done the due diligence to try to figure that out. Um, but my plan is to kind of just lay off my two better spots these first couple weeks um, and then potentially – you know, when the when the wind and the weather is right, um, go in for some afternoon sits 
starting probably in mid-October for those deer. Um, I'm not going to be hunting either one of them very much uh, before like um, about the 27th of October. I actually am going to be in Kansas from I think the 21st through the 25th. I have to be home for my son's first birthday on the 26th. Uh, and then after that, like the 27th through Halloween is really when I plan on getting after those those two deer, you know, when that pre-rut is really kicking in. So my first couple of weeks here, I'm going to uh, go out with a little guy. I got a ground blind set up at my lease, and I'm going to try to shoot a doe, honestly, with with him in the blind with me. That's my my goal for the first couple of weekends here. Yeah, well, it, make, it makes sense given the scenario you're laying out there. Um, but do you, do you do anything during that time period that you're not actually hunting to still try to gather intel? I mean, are, do you have a trail camera situation going on oh, or sure. anything else? I mean, what are you doing to yeah. gain intel at that point? I mean, I'm a trail camera junkie. I mean, I probably have 25 cameras deployed right now between my various properties that I hunt. I don't check them very often this time of year. I'll check them usually when I go hunting. Uh, but I tell you what, the cellular trail cameras are fantastic. They text me pictures right to my phone mm-hmm. so I can I can keep an eye on what's going on that way. Um, you know, fortunately, where the biggest buck is at, uh, it's a property I've been hunting for a long, long time. I know what the deer do. Uh, I generally know where they move, kind of when they move, uh, when that pre-rut starts heating up. All my stands have been set mostly in the same places for a few years now. Uh, they're all trimmed and ready to go. So now it's kind of just waiting for the right time to, to get in there and and, and go after them. Uh, but, yeah, definitely trail camera data is going to tell me a lot. And then I'll just watch the weather. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in these cold fronts uh, in, you know, early to, to mid-October, even through late October. If we can get a good cold front because these spots are local, I'll just sneak out of work early in an afternoon and go hunt, you know, and try to capitalize on those those weather fronts. Yeah. So if you're a big boy doesn't show up, you know, because you've hunted this property for a long time, if he doesn't show up on trail camera for like, uh, I don't know, in between a, a, a couple checks, are you worried at any point that this buck has maybe been shot or has disappeared or, you know, your property well enough that he's pro- he could still be there and is just on a different piece of the sure. property. Uh, I'd say, I mean, if I went, you know, three, four weeks without a picture, I'd probably get worried. But, you know, if I check cameras and then go back the next week and check them and don't have them, I wouldn't, that doesn't ever worry me. I mean, I didn't get pictures of that deer this summer until gosh, mid August. I want to say it was before I got any summertime pictures of them in velvet. So, I mean, I was starting to get a little worried thinking like, where is he? Um, but then he showed up and he's been a regular on camera. I mean, he's on, uh, I got one cellular camera on that farm on a scrape and he's there every three or four nights now pretty regularly during the middle of the night um so i wake up in the morning and i got a picture of him on my phone <laughs> kind of doing it his weekly rounds uh-huh. so uh yeah i'm not super super concerned i mean there's guys that hunt around me on neighboring properties i know most of them um and if he get hit, probably has a better chance of getting hit by a car than he does killed by another hunter um just where we're at i've got a four lane you know highway that that borders probably a mile of the property that i'm on uh, so, I mean, that's like, you know, 70, 75 miles an hour cars and trucks and semis all day, all night. So he's probably got a better chance of getting smacked by a car out there than he does, you know, killed by another hunter. Now, what about, what about the opposite? So the, what if in the early season that cell camera starts showing daylight pictures of him? Are you going to scrap your uh, plan and all of a sudden decide to move in there? Or are you, are you staying out no matter uh, what? Sure. Ab- absolutely. I mean, 
I mean, you start getting daylight pictures of a buck, you better get your ass in there and kill them, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, once they start doing that, that's when they're, they're killable. Why wait? You know, so, yeah, I mean, if for some reason that happens, absolutely. Generally speaking, on this farm with the bucks of that age and even with this buck, he usually doesn't start showing up daylight till the end of October. I think last year I had him like on the, I don't remember, 23rd, 24th, somewhere around there, first started showing up on scrapes during daylight. Um, so that's kind of been my plan is just wait till that, you know, later part of October, um, and get in there and, and try to kill them then. But yeah. if it happens sooner than, than great, you know, I think there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of guys out there that, you know, and I know a few of them that I hunt with or I'm friends with that. I mean, they, they listen to all the podcasts, right? They read all the blogs, they watch all the YouTube videos and there's so much information out there nowadays. It's like, early season tactics find where the bucks bed and go in and get super close to their their bedding area or the bump them and dump them and all these things that i just think like they work sometimes but the percentage of times that those things work especially for a a novice hunter is so low you know i just feel like there's a lot of guys that just read something or hear something or see something and they just go out and do it and man i mean i've always felt like you're kind of playing with fire if you get too aggressive too early in the year you know, I've learned as I get a little bit older to just relax a little bit, back it down, wait till the time's right, and go in and, and try to kill them then. Seem to have better luck doing that than I do getting super aggressive and trying to, you know, sneak in. You know, I I, I got in this stand and I'm 50 yards from a bedded buck. Well, I mean, dude, I don't know about you guys, but that's a hard thing to do <laughs> without spooking a deer, you know. So I prefer to just wait till the time is right when they're moving a little bit during the daylight hit those scrapes. Um, I really kind of key in on, on scrapes and field edges and maybe some food plots, you know, where the does are going to be at during uh, late October and hope for the best. So, so speaking of like scrapes, you mentioned this in relation to trail cameras too earlier. What, 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 what is your trail camera kind of set up and plan in October? Do you have everything out already and you're just leaving it untouched until you start hunting more or do you move things around? Um, sure. I'm curious about that. Yeah, my summertime, I usually put all of my cameras on field edges um, just because I don't know about where you guys are at, but where we're at here, our mosquitoes during the summer are god awful. I mean, they're horrendous. You can't even step foot in the woods uh, during the summertime without just getting destroyed by mosquitoes. So I try to keep everything on field edges where it's easy to check, not a super far walk from the truck or I can pretty much drive right to it uh, during the summertime. And then usually right about the time when velvet comes off, um, I move the vast majority of my cameras to scrapes just because I know that's where I'm going to get the most concentrated and best activity. Uh, and I feel like it's a good indicator of when the bucks really start moving during the daylight. So during the early part of the season, I'm not super religious about checking cameras. You know, I'll, I'm an opportunistic camera checker. I'll check them on my way into or out of my stands if I happen to be going by one of them. But I'm not the kind of guy that's going to go circle through my whole property and check every camera one day, like in early October. Um, you know, once we hit that 15th to the 20th, then I'll start trying to check them a little bit more regularly to see what bucks are showing up where. And really try to key in on when you start seeing that first daytime activity of your bigger bucks anyways uh, on those scrapes. I feel like that's just a great indicator of what's happening. And it kind of lets you know when you should be gearing up to get in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that mid-October, mid to the later third of October then, 
if we're saying that you took kind of a couple weeks there to shoot does and stay out of your good spots, now if we move up to the 15th through the 20th or something in there, if we do yep. get that cold front like you mentioned, or maybe you get a daylight picture that indicates, all right, maybe there's some daylight activity going, what are the kinds of setups that you're going to be in at that point? Is it scrapes like you just mentioned or anything else like more detailed? Uh, man, I try to keep it simple, and I try to stick to the basic principles that – I feel are pretty solid no matter where you go. Hunt bedding areas in the morning and food sources slash scrapes in the evenings. I'm a pretty simple dude. So, you know, I've got a couple morning setups where I feel like I can sneak into them uh, without disturbing the the destination food sources uh, that are in or close to or on travel corridors back to bedding uh, in October uh, and mid-October. And then evenings, you know, I'm kind of an, an edge hunter. I don't like to push too far into the woods in the evenings. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I key in on those scrapes, on those field edges, especially like around here. If I can find a field edge or something that's kind of hidden from view uh, from a road or from a house, usually that's going to be the most active area during daylight. So I'll try to key in on, on those areas. Uh, actually, the stand where I passed this buck last year uh, is right on kind of a field edge uh, where the deer don't really come out into the field too much, but they parallel the field edge right on the inside of the woods, kind of looking out into the field. Uh, they come out to this corner, uh, and they usually check a scrape, um, and they do one of two things. They either wait till dark to go out and cross the field, uh, or they turn around and they head back in the woods and go somewhere else. Uh, so like that's a really good spot, like an evening spot for me. Um, and like I said, mornings, you know, especially in mid-October, if you can get a cold front, something that's maybe going to keep those bucks on their feet a little bit later than they normally would be. Uh, and you could sneak into one of those bedding areas where, where you feel like you can truly get back in there before that deer is coming back to bed and you can catch them back in there. Then, then that's where I've traditionally had success in October. Uh, I've killed most of my October deer or bucks, I should say on morning hunts, which I know is contrary to what a lot of people are saying these days. It's kind of like the trendy thing to do right now is like, don't hunt mornings in October. Um, I've killed deer on October 16th, 18th, 19th, you know, and then we start getting the 28th, 29th Halloween. Like I've killed deer on mornings, all those, all those days. Um, I knew I liked you, (laughs) but every one of them's coincided with a, with a cold front. Every single one of them is coincided with a significant drop in temperature that I believe has kept those bucks, you know, out and about, you know, a little bit later, maybe checking scrapes, looking for does before they decide to go back to bed. Yeah. Everything's, everything's circumstantial, right? It's all based on this, whatever the different conditions are. And man, I desperately try to stay trendy, but you're absolutely right. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes there are circumstances where you need to break the traditional rules. Um, I know Dan just likes to go plowing right through the food sources yeah, straight into the bedding area every morning, and he just likes to get after it. But, <laughs> but let's get face out of it, we, we all did that when we were younger. It's true. It's true. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I remember being probably, I don't know if I was in high school or maybe just like right in college, 18, 19, somewhere in there. My dad used to drive me up to the top of this field on the property we hunted. It was a cut cornfield. He'd drive me all the way to the top of it. And I would walk across this cut cornfield. It was probably a hundred acre field. And I would walk right on the peak of it, like the flat spot, <laughs> all the way across, probably a quarter mile or more across this cut cornfield. And then I'd get into my stand that was like 10 yards on the inside the edge of the field. And there would be deer running everywhere every morning <laughs> when I walked in that field. I could see them with my light, 
you know, tails and eyeballs. And then I'd get in there and I'd get ready to hunt and I'd see like one deer that morning. And I'd come out and be like, man, I don't know what happened. There was deer everywhere when I walked in and then, and then I didn't see anything. You know, I just, I guess I didn't know any better then until I learned to like, don't go pounding through the middle of the food source in the morning and you'll have a lot better luck. Uh Uh-huh. There's a few basic principles like that that can make a big difference. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, not to toot our own horns here, but the, the, really the advent and the popularity of the internet in general has really sped up the learning curve of today's hunter. You know, you can listen to a podcast or read a blog or watch a YouTube video and you can pick up information that used to take you years to learn through trial and error. You know, I can't tell you how many years I walked through that stupid cornfield, you know, before one day something finally clicked. But now as a younger hunter, you know, you can, the, the, the wealth of information that's available out there from experienced people with real world knowledge, like it's just so much greater. Like your learning curve is so much shorter nowadays, you know, to become, you know, a halfway decent deer hunter. There's, you still can't replace experience, you know, but you can learn a lot of the basics a lot quicker than, than I went through with my trial and error as a young man. I used to hunt from the ground a lot. I used to do a lot of, uh, quote unquote, still hunting Ooh. Uh, when I thought that was a thing because, you know, I read a magazine article about it. Uh-huh. And uh, so my buddy Mike and I, we were in high school, we'd go out hunting after school. You know, we we'd had all of our clothes in the backseat of our car. We'd get out there to our hunting spot. We'd get dressed, spray down with our earth scented everything. So we had wafers <laughs> yeah, hanging all the wafers? over us. <laughs> <laughs> and, we'd, and we'd walk out in the woods and we'd clear a spot next to a tree. We didn't hunt out of tree stands kick out some leaves next to a tree and sit there and wait right and i'd wait in about a half hour before dark when it was getting to be prime time we were like okay now it's time to go do a little bit of still hunting so we'd get up (laughs) and start walking around the woods and try to sneak from tree to tree during that last prime time to see if we could catch a deer on their feet we had no rhyme or reason as to where we were going or why we were going there (laughs) or, or anything you know, and it's it's a wonder we ever managed to happen into a deer that let us shoot it, you know? That's awesome. But uh, it's funny looking back on those old days now. Oh, yeah. I think we all have experiences or stories like that. All right, well, I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties and to check in with them for our weekly dose of Whitetail Wisdom. And here to help us do that is Wired to Hunt's very own Barry White impersonator, our producer, Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Justin Mason, a land specialist out of Kentucky. And Justin is going to be telling us about what government programs are available to help landowners generate additional income on their property. Uh, So I think, you know, the the number one thing to remember is on your hunting property, as long as you own it, there are programs that you could be eligible for. Um, I kind of break them down into a couple of categories. There are one-time enrollment programs uh, like the wetland reserve program you enroll the program one time it pays up front and then that you know that program is established for a lot of times in the lifetime of the property the most common would be uh, those annual payment programs like crp Um, it's short for conservation reserve program and really what crp does is it pays the landowner not to farm the property so it goes into either some sort of um, annual program with either trees you either plant some trees or a lot of it is uh, kind of a cool season grass which when you're hunting those midwest states and you see those crp fields that's that's what a lot of those are enrolled in Um, so those are probably the most common types of government programs if you'd like to learn more 
and to see the properties that Justin currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Mason. That's M-A-S-O-N. Oh, gosh. How, how do things for you start changing once we get into those rut phases? Um, I mean, there, there's like the there's the traditional things that we always talk about. Do you, do you feel like you're a traditionalist when it comes to the rut? I mean, hunting all day, hunting near bedding areas or a pinch point, just put in the sure. time, or do you do anything different? Again, I go back to, I just like to keep it simple. You know, I like to hunt pinch points and funnels during the rut. Uh, when it's, when the time's right and the most specifically when the weather's right, uh, I like to hunt all day when I can. Um, a lot of my all day sits I'll do like, uh, if I'm on a single piece of property, I might do like a bedding area in the morning, um, you know, and hunt that through like midday. And then, you know, sometimes you just need to break up the monotony. So I'll get down and maybe walk a couple hundred yards to another stand on that same property and climb up for the rest of the afternoon sit. You know, it's hard sitting in a, in a little tree stand all damn day. I mean, I do it and I've done it, but I, I really prefer to get down, stretch my legs eat a sandwich real quick, you know, maybe spend 20 minutes in between one stand and the next stand. Um, and then maybe hunt a food source in the evening, something along those lines. I'll do a lot. Um, but again, I mean, I try to be just a traditional stick with the stuff that's worked for centuries. You know, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Bucks are going to be moving in between bedding areas, get in those funnels and those pinch points, hit the food sources in the evenings. Cause they're looking for does. Um, and then I, I think maybe the one thing that I do that that's more of a modern technique is, you know, I do move stands a lot during the season. Um, you know, we use all, all lone wolf stuff, which I think is, you know, great, super portable. There's a lot of good options on the market, probably more than there's ever been for being able to do these run and gun type setups. So, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy that's like, well, I've had this stand here forever and it's always produced, but I hunt it twice and I see the deer using the other side of the field more than they have in the past, I'm yanking that stand or I'm grabbing a new one and I'm going over there and I'm, I'm going to hang and hunt. Uh, so I'm a really big advocate of hunting fresh sign, uh, doing some in-season scouting. Um, that, that's probably the one thing I do a lot of that I would consider more of a, a newer type of technique. So are, when you're doing that in-season scouting, is that just scouting that's happening while you're already walking from point A to point B? Or do you actively say, all right, I'm going to go explore a new spot or check out this region specifically because you want to scout it? A uh, little bit of both. I'd say the majority of it is just way in and way out type stuff where it's like, oh, hey, man, it looks like they're really using this. You know, I try to I try to park pretty far from where I'm hunting. The last, last year I got kind of lazy with, with what I was doing and I was – driving entirely too far into my property and parking. And I think I screwed up some of my hunts, but in the past, um, you know, I try to, I try to park pretty far away and take the long way in just to avoid deer where I can. Uh, so you get a lot of scouting done that way. And then a lot of times what I'll do, honestly, like a good example is, you know, I'll, I'll be out at my lease. It's two hours away and I'll hunt, let's say a Sunday morning. And I know I'm not coming back to that property till maybe next weekend. I'm going to go home that afternoon and I'm going to hunt Sunday night local to, to home so I can get home. Uh, so I'll do my morning hunt and then I'll be like, you know what? I'm not coming back here for a week. I'll go walk that whole piece of property because I don't care if I, if I spook something, if I bump something, I need to know what's going on in there. If I want to try to, you know, kill an animal, obviously if I'm seeing a lot of deer and I'm confident in where I'm at, I'll, I'll, I might not do that. But if it's like, man, I haven't really been seeing the deer that I'm used to, 
let's go check cameras, let's go walk this whole thing and see what the hell's going on out there. Because patterns do change from year to year. You know, food sources change every year, the neighbors are doing different things. Someone put a fence up, someone took the fence down, whatever the case may be. Um, I think having that knowledge of what's happening at that specific time and being able to move in on it quickly uh, prevents it or offers a huge uh, advantage for today's kind of modern hunter. Now, with with that said, you know, you say patterns change. Mark and I on the show talk a lot about annual patterns. Let's say a buck shows up, it isn't on your property at all until X date every year. Are you a a fan of, or do you believe in annual patterns? And do you have an example of maybe seeing that on any of the properties that you hunt? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the annual patterns are a pain in the ass for the (laughs) most part, because you get these deer that show up in the summer in velvet, you know, and then they leave. So I've got one of those, the deers, I don't know, seven years old, probably now he shows up every year, usually in August. Uh, start when our, our acorns drop pretty early where we're at here. We got a lot of white oak acorns on some of the farms I hunt. So when those white oaks start dropping into the alfalfa fields, this buck shows up every year in August, stays for a couple weeks, usually right till about when the velvet's going to come off and then he disappears and never to be seen again, never found a shed, nothing. Um, you know, likewise, I usually have one or two bucks that show up every year in the fall that weren't there during the summer that are just kind of relocating for whatever reason. So, yeah, I definitely believe in those those annual patterns. The bitch about those annual patterns, though, is, you know, as predictable as they are, they're usually based on like a per deer thing. Like each deer's got its thing it does. Mm-hmm. Some deer move, some deer don't. I have some deer that are homebodies and they just they're there all year long. Some deer aren't. So it's really hard to base anything on that. In a lot of cases, if you don't know the deer's even alive. I did that last year. Um, the farm where I passed the big deer we didn't have any bucks on camera older than three years old. And this is like a, I don't know, six or 800 acre farm, right? There was nothing older than three years old. The year wow. prior to that, um, all of our deer got either killed by neighbors or hit by cars. We lost like three or four really good bucks to cars that year. So last year I, I didn't have any deer older than three years old, but I knew that traditionally something would show up in November from across the road somewhere and I'd have a good buck that would come through the property at some point, usually later in November, say after the 15th. So I hunted that farm pretty hard, hoping that was going to happen, and it never did. Uh, unfortunately, I never got a single trail camera picture. I had a sighting uh, of any deer on that farm older than three years old. So I was hunting something that I was hoping was going to happen versus what I should have been doing was going to my other spot where I know I had two bona fide four-year-olds that I would have loved to shoot. Um but for some reason, I was hung up on hunting this other farm, thinking something's going to show up. The other farm was a little easier to hunt, better access. You know, I liked my stand placement better. So I was like, I'm just going to keep going here. Something's got to show up eventually. And it just never happened. Um, and then I let the other farm with two shooters just sit for some stupid reason. Wasn't a good, <laughs> wasn't a good choice. Happens to the best of us, that's for sure. Um, talking about tree stand placement. If I, I want to rewind just a little bit to something you were saying earlier about the fact that you run and gun a lot, one of the things that I'm always challenged with is how many like observations or how many like data points do I need to see before I make that change? So let's say I'm sitting on one side of a clearing and I see a deer, a buck on the opposite side. 
do I need to see him once and then I should move? Or should I see him do the same thing twice and make the move? Or, you know, what's the number for you? Or, or when are you willing to say, all right, that threshold's been passed. It's time to pull and reset up. Oh, man, that's a, that's a hard one, right? Because that's the, uh, I saw him over there once. I moved my stand over there. And then as soon as I got there, he was back over where my exactly. other stand was at. Exactly. You know, so I usually like to say more than once. Uh, for the most part, I think a lot of it depends on the time of year. And for me, it's not so much always sightings as it is sign. Cause I'm only in the woods. So every so often, I mean, I hunt weekends like everybody else. I sneak in a few evening hunts during the week, you know, in late October. And that's really about it. So I don't get as many like observational type sits as I'd, I'd like to have as most of us would like to have so i'm relying on trail camera data in a lot of cases and i'm relying on sign i mean if i'm just seeing all of a sudden a bunch of fresh scrapes open up or fresh rubs or tracks or just whatever the case may be and i'm like man something's going on over here i need to get in here i'll move in on something without ever having uh seen a deer there before you know i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but i won't yank what i believe to be a good stand and move it based simply on one sighting of a deer you know across a field where i don't have a stand like i still try to believe that most of my scouting is accurate Mm -hmm. and my stands are in good spots until i've really been proven otherwise i have on a stand like twice and i don't have a deer in, in bow range and i feel like it's the right conditions it's the right time of year and nothing's happening like i may abandon that stand for the rest of the year i may yank it and pull it somewhere else Mm -hmm. i'm not one to usually stick a stand out for a long period of time if it's not proving itself do you have like a set routine i mean for me i'll go into a spot that i i feel is good whether i got a trail camera picture or sign and i'll let's say i'll hunt an evening a morning and an evening or or, uh, a morning an evening and a morning and then and then give it like three hunts and then go do you have a set thing that you like to do or is it all kind of a shoot from the hip thing I think it's a shoot from the hip kind of thing. It base is based on, again, time of year, wind direction, weather fronts. Like it all kind of plays a factor into like where I want to go and what I believe the deer are going to be doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I try anyways. Again, because I'm fortunate to have a couple spots to hunt, I try not to pound them too hard. I try to bounce between them. There aren't a lot of days where I hunt the same farm morning and afternoon, like here locally, anyways. Um, I try to I try to alternate between the two of them obviously when i'm driving two hours and i'm maybe staying overnight um you know i'm gonna hunt that same farm for a day day and a half and then come home um but yeah i try to i just really try to bounce around a lot last year i tried because i was really short on time last year and you know the new baby and work and everything else i had one stand that i just knew was going to be a good stand um it was near a field edge had a big scrape right in front of it tons of fresh sun around it and I hunted that stand every time I had the right wind and weather conditions. I went to it four or five evenings, you know, over like a 10-day period, something like that. And um, I never killed a buck from it. Uh, the last day I hunted it, I actually had to hunt a morning instead of an afternoon. And uh, I went there that morning and hunted that stand, didn't see a single deer, and I left. Uh, came back a couple days later, checked the trail camera that was on that scrape, and uh, the big, uh, he was a 12-pointer that I was after, was on that scrape that afternoon <laughs> that I had been there, you know. And so it was like, my plan would have worked. If I would have just stayed the course and kept hunting that one stand, 
uh, in evenings. I knew it was only a matter of time before a buck showed in daylight. It was like October 28th, 29th. Um, it did work. I just wasn't there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. I, I wish I did. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of guys that pretend like they know what the answer is, but in my opinion, you know, there, yes, there's guys that are, that are very good at hunting, but so much of it just comes down to the amount of time you have to spend in the woods and the quality of the property that you have. If you have a, a good property and you halfway know what you're doing, you spend enough time out there, you're probably going to get a shot at something. I know a lot of guys that have killed a lot of deer over the years that aren't the best hunters in the world. They just got a lot of time to do it. Yeah. So when you're limited on time like that because of work or – you know, you guys that have all these kids, is there anything, is there <laughs> anything, yeah, is there anything you've learned that's helped you make the most of that other than what we've already talked about? Uh, honestly, man, I try to, uh, as I call it, you know, kind of pick my battles, right? Both with the deer and with my wife, because I know that I'm only going to have so much time to hunt. So it's like, you know, the wife wants to go to the pumpkin patch this weekend, you know, and it's October 17th. But we've got it's warm and it's 80 some degrees today with a 15 mile an hour south wind. And I'm like, you know what? I'll take an afternoon off and I just won't hunt this afternoon. I'll make the wife happy. I'll make the kids happy. We'll go get pumpkins and do whatever we're going to do, because the next time a cold front comes in, I'm going to cash in one of my chips and say I'm going hunting tonight. Yeah, Um, I think just hunting when the time is right. Now, not everybody's afforded that opportunity. You know, if you're a guy that's planning an out of state trip or you're going on a an outfitted hunt with somebody and you're saying, Hey, November 1st through the 5th, I'm going to be in Missouri with such and such outfitter. Like you just take what you can get, you know, you don't have that, that luxury. So not everybody can do that. Fortunately, I'm in a position where, where I I get that flexibility from time to time. Uh, and I think that's made the world a difference in some of my, my hunting. Um, I've killed a lot of my deer, uh, in the last, you know, couple years on those, you know, Fridays or Mondays or, you know, Wednesday afternoon type of sits. Right, with those with those correct conditions. And you talked about the cold fronts that you like to key in on. Do you pay attention to any other types of factors that, you know, get tossed around there like the moon or pressure or anything like that? Does that factor in at all for you? Uh, man, I used to. Believe me, I've listened to Mark Drury on your podcast 20 times, <laughs> yeah. as, as have the rest of the guys on our team, and, you know, tried to dissect it and everything. But the fact of the matter is it just it boils down to I only got so much time. Right. You know, so it's like I, I used to worry about the wind. Like I used to plan my weekend trips to my lease based on the on the, not the wind, the moon. Um, and I've been proven wrong so many times. I'd be like, oh, that's a full moon. They're not going to be moving today. I'm just going to stay at home. And then it's like everybody I know is killing deer mm-hmm. somewhere. And it's like, well, I thought they weren't supposed to be moving today. Well, it turns out it was, you know, a weather front and high pressure. I think personally weather trumps everything else Mm -hmm. when it comes to deer movement specifically cold fronts which are generally associated with you know the pressure is usually going to drop before the cold front and then once it passes through most of the time you get those you know bluebird skies a heavy frost hopefully a light wind like that next morning after that front's gone uh those seem to be the best times for me to kill deer like if i see that perfect storm of like this is coming i really try to just be like I need to be in the woods on that day. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm right there with you. What do you think about this, Justin? What do you think your, what's your greatest weakness as a hunter or what do you, what do you struggle with the most? If you had to, uh, if you had to point at something. 
executing the shot at the moment of truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably. T- you know, I've been I've traditionally been pretty good about putting myself in in positions to get shots at animals. Uh, I've botched more of them than I care to admit. So that's probably the, still the biggest area that I struggle with. Um, and it's gotten a lot better with age and experience. Uh, and I think just maybe lessening the pressure on myself. I really don't feel pressure anymore when I'm, when I shoot a deer, you know, I'm pretty confident in my ability as an archer just in general. Um, but that's probably still the biggest area that I have to, to work on. You know, I can get close to them. I can get them in there, you know, getting them killed is another story. Yeah. So what kind of stuff have you done to try to improve there so far? Have you changed at all how you're practicing or anything with your archer or has it just been get more experience shooting more deer? Uh, yeah, more experience shooting more deer, um, and just shooting my bow a lot more, you know, just because I can pick up my bow and, 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 you know, hit a bullseye on that first shot, you know, every time that's not necessarily enough. You know, some of the guys that, that film for our show are people that I know are, are police officers that are involved in like, you know, whether it be SWAT teams or special response teams and stuff. And they preach a lot of, you know, just constant training and that muscle memory. Because when you get put into a situation that's kind of high stress, you know, as you guys know, I mean, think about some of the deer that you've shot over the years, specifically mostly on bucks, right? Sometimes you don't even remember the whole shot process. Yeah. Like your brain just kind of blanks, you know, in the process of drawing and aiming and shooting and everything. And you're like, I know I did it and I know I hit the deer, but what the hell just happened? Right. (laughs) Right. So that's like where that muscle memory, you know, everybody is, you know, kind of preached to me, like you just have to shoot a lot. Like your brain needs to know exactly what it's doing. So it's just shooting, you know, whether it's every day, every other day, 10, 15 arrows, you know, I set up a bag target in my basement uh, and I try to shoot a lot, you know, just so that, you know, when that high stress situation comes, your brain's going to, I guess, revert back to its, I don't know, base memory or whatever of what you're doing. Uh, And I want that to be a good one and not a bad one. So that's probably the biggest thing. And then I just think, you know, age, um, you know, I guess it's like anything in life, right? You got some sports figures, because I always, this is the analogy I try to make to people. You got some sports figures that are just clutch, right? You know that when it's the bottom of the ninth, two outs, winning runs at third base, there are certain guys that aren't phased by that and can just, it's like ice in their veins. They're just clutch. And then there's some guys that aren't. I'm not a clutch guy. (laughs) I've never (laughs) been a clutch guy, but I'm working really on trying to become more of that person yeah um you know i know some guys that are just they're just stone cold killers man they just don't get rattled you know their heart rate doesn't seem to go up at all and you know for me i'm totally the opposite you know there's times when i've just totally fallen apart and let a shot go and i'm like what the hell just happened uh (laughs) yeah (laughs) so that's that's the part for me that that i probably still work on the most yeah Dan, how's your how's your archery practice going? We talked like a month or a month and a half ago about some of the things you were doing this year. What's your progress there? Yeah, I made the mistake of trying to teach myself back tension. Oh boy, too close to the season, I think. So like I was with getting... an actual back tension release, like with a hinge, or are you just shooting yes. a thumb trigger? No, oh, oh the full God. blown back tension. So I started off, and it just it was a shock to my system. And I think that shock was too close to the hunting season. Um, and I ended up putting it down 
and it's something that I'm going to pick back up as soon as the season's over for the next year. I just felt that I needed more time with the schedule that I had. I needed more time to, um, you know, to, to properly train myself on how to use it and sure. seek advice. So why did others. you do that? Were you having target panic issues that you were trying to yeah. resolve? You know, it's one of those things just like we all talk about. You're online, you read up, you know, like, hey, I've had problems with, you know, I got a social media site too. And, I, you know, I ask the people that are on there, uh, you know, I've suffered from target panic in the uh, in the past. I'm that guy who, depending on the scenario, blacks straight out and is just like, oh, what just happened? You know what I mean? And I want to prevent that from happening. So that's why I decided to go to the back tension. It's just that I think it was too close to the season. So I ended up going back to my wrist trigger release. Um, I ended up having to change my sights again. So I I basically had to redo my whole setup again, which was, you know, that's okay. But I think I'm going to stick with that and just, I don't know, go with a slap to the face. Or (laughs) when, when When that moment comes, you know. Uh, last year, I I just kind of was like, I closed my eyes after I saw the buck, and I was just like, dude, just relax, man, just relax. And yeah, I still got fired up, but you know, every time I, I say this, I say this all the time, but you know, when you're around the caliber of bucks that get you excited, and that doesn't necessarily mean giant 200 inch bucks, right? And we're talking about depending on where you're at, if it, it's the first 120 you've ever seen, it's going to be a shock to your system. And, and it, I don't, it's just men's nature nowadays to get fired up on the rack. And I had to tell myself that means nothing. The most important thing is to, to get an accurate shot and, uh, I just try to calm myself down through like, like talking to myself. Sure. Yeah. I, believe me, Dan, I, I'm hundred percent with you. Is there any reason you didn't try just a, a, a standard thumb trigger release instead of going, going all in on the hinge? Well, yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with recommendations from others. I mean, the, the people that I've talked to are just like, dude, skip the thumb release and go straight to the back tension release. It's going to, it's going to do, do you worlds better, you know, as far as, uh, accuracy. Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with the bow setup too. I mean, if you change your release, you're obviously going to have to change potentially your draw. And I think I'm, I might have had to do some of that as well. So I just went back with what I was comfortable with. And then, uh, once this season's over, then it's just time to start from scratch again. Yeah. See, I switched to a thumb release, um, I don't know, four years ago or so now, because I was having a lot of target panic issues with my uh, wrist strap and my index finger release. And it's helped significantly. Um, It hasn't eliminated it entirely. It still rears its ugly little head from time to time. So, you know, I work, I've mentioned I shoot in my basement a lot. I work a lot on kind of just blank bailing where you close your eyes and shoot into the target and, and focus more on, you know, your muscles and your release and your, and your form and everything than, than worrying about where the arrow's hitting, uh, right. which has helped a lot. And when I do try to, there's every once in a while, I catch myself kind of trying to punch the trigger even on the thumb release, but it's a lot harder to do. Uh, so like I'll get that little jolt almost, but the release doesn't go off. Right. Uh, and then I'm able to kind of set myself and be like, okay, 
relax, you know, breathe, pull through the shot. And I feel like I've become a better archer. Part of the reason I switched as well is with us filming all of our hunts, we do a ton of self-filming. And I felt like it was easier for me to have my release already clipped onto the bow because I'm kind of holding my bow in the left hand, camera in the right hand, you know, and when I let go of that camera, all I have to do is grab the release and draw and shoot versus trying to hook up in at the moment of truth. Uh, you know, and Dan, I know you've filmed before. So, I mean, adding the, the camera into the mix definitely adds like a whole nother level of stress, which yeah, just absolutely. compounds that like blackout thing that happens. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, going to a thumb trigger was huge for me. I'm not sure I could ever go back, but I gave myself, you know, six months before hunting season, I switched in the spring because believe me, dude, I launched a couple arrows. They probably still haven't landed, <laughs> you know, with that, with that thumb trigger when I first started using it. So it's definitely a big learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I've done a, a similar switch and, and we talked about it a few weeks ago too, but I haven't switched to a thumb or, or, or hinge yet. I'm still using a index finger release, but it's a, it's a, it's a much better one than I used to use with a really hard trigger break, but I'm switching to like a back tension type process of shot sequence. So I'm locking that finger on the trigger right when I, right when I draw back. So I used to draw back anchor, you know, get the pin on him. And then like right when I was about to shoot, then I put my finger on the release and, and yeah, I had those similar types of punching type things that I didn't, I didn't like, I don't know if it was like admitting it to myself or recognizing that that was like target panic, but I've kind of come to terms with that. So, so yeah, I switched to this new sequence and I kind of switched to it pretty late, but I'm feeling really good about it so far. And it can, it has definitely like, I can 100% tell that it has improved, um, what I'm doing and, and like significantly limiting those urges to, to punch the trigger in some form or fashion. Like you said, just never once in a while, every rare occasion, I'll get that little jolt where like the mind wants to do that. But because I don't pull the trigger with my finger anymore, it doesn't happen. Um, so, so now I'm locked on there and, and I, I have like a controlled process and I just have to go through step one, step two, and then step three triggers my, in my brain to start pulling with my back. And, and now that happens and I really am finally achieving a surprise release and I'm like, Oh, so that's what it's supposed to feel like. (laughs) It really does surprise me. And that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, it works. It actually works. So that's kind of cool. Now, I haven't, you know, shot at anything in the field yet. So that's going to be the next big test. And and we'll see how that goes. But fingers crossed. Did I I just see that you – did you just shoot a caribou? Is that what you went and shot? I did shoot a caribou. Were you caribou hunting? Yes. was Was that with a gun? That was a gun hunt, yep. How was it? How was the hunt? Was it oh, awesome? The hunt was insane. It was it was really really <sighs> cool. I'm I'm jealous. Yeah, man. I'm a little, I'm a little jealous, man. <laughs> Alaska and Alaska was unreal. How was the meat? Delicious. Oh, absolutely, suck. absolutely delicious. So the two coolest ways I've eaten caribou so far. I don't even know if I talked about this on when we did our caribou podcast, Dan. But one way we did it is one of our nights while we were out there, we did an Asian hot pot. So we had this big pot of of broth with all these different Asian spices and carrots and onions and Szechuan peppercorns and stuff in there. So we bring that pot to a boil. And then we sliced up caribou heart and caribou backstrap in really, really thin little strips. And then with little wooden skewers, we'd, we'd stick a slice of meat on the end of the wooden stick and we'd dip it into that boiling pot of broth for just like 15, 20 seconds, just enough to give it a little sear. Then you take that out and dip it in this kind of soy sauce type 
mixture. Eat that with your fingers, and that was oh, that was absolutely. It sounds primo. like it sounds like fondue. Yeah, exactly. Basically, exactly. Right? It was like meat fondue, yo. Yeah, um, that's freaking cool. That was incredible. And then another thing we did is Steve cut the eyeballs out of my caribou and then cut the fat, the white fatty stuff from the back of the eyeball and made us try eating that. And I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't say that was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but... But he was Is that right. one of those things where it's like, hey, let's trick the rookie? Oh, well. Or it was like, like <laughs> hey, the natives used to do this, and it, it was some special. It was know, that kind of who thing. Who knows? It's an species. <laughs> yeah. So we all did it, and and it really did taste like he said it would. It did taste like pizza dough. Um, but it was a little gross thinking about the fact that I was eating eyeball fat from a caribou that I just shot. But uh, it's a story to tell, I guess, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, how many people can tell that story, right? <laughs> Not Life too many. is a series of cool stories, yep. and, that, and that's about as cool as they get. My new favorite way to uh, to cook venison is uh, my sous vide cooker, mm. which is the coolest thing ever. If anybody hasn't heard of it, yeah, talk. Have about you guys that. heard of it or know what it is? I've heard of I it, but no I've never idea. done it. So sous vide, uh, I forgot what it stands for. Obviously, it's some foreign thing, but essentially, it's. Uh, you take your meat, like for me personally, when I eat venison, I like to brine it um, for at least a few hours, if not overnight. I feel like it, you know, gets whatever, you know, quote unquote gamey flavor it may have uh, out of the meat, makes it a little bit tender, uh, more tender. So for people that don't eat venison a lot, like it makes it, I guess, maybe a little more palatable for them. So I usually brine it. Uh, and then you, I take uh, like a backstrap or like, let's say a quarter of a backstrap and vacuum seal it. Um you can either put seasonings in the vacuum sealer or marinade. It's up to you. But I usually vacuum seal it with just some salt and pepper. And the sous vide cooker, essentially, you take a, a pot of water that's room temperature. You put the cooker in it. And you set the temperature on the cooker. Uh, so I cook my venison to about 130 degrees, which is about medium rare. Uh, and then you take this meat that's in this vacuum sealed bag and you put it in the water bath, essentially. And then the, the cooker, what all it's doing is it's heating the water up and and circulating the water. So the, the heat from the water is actually cooking the meat, right? And the cool thing about sous vide is you guys know with cooking venison, it's really easy to overcook, mm-hmm. right? And if you overcook venison, it's, it's awful, right? Yep. So with the sous vide, so it's t- typically when you cook venison, let's say you're going to throw a backstrap or a steak on the grill or on the skillet or whatever, you got a 500 degree grill, you throw it on there, like you have to pull it off at the exact time when it hits that temperature that you want in order to get the 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 doneness that you want well with sous vide basically i say i want it to 130 degrees which is medium rare and i can leave that thing in there for an hour two hours three hours four hours five hours doesn't really matter how long i leave it in there you don't want to leave it in there for days but i can throw it on there at one in the afternoon and when i finally get hungry at 5 30 or whatever i could pull that meat out of the water bath keep in mind the meats never actually touch the water because it's in a bag and it's perfectly cooked all the way through from end to end. So there's no, like, it's more done on the outside and less done in the middle. Like, the whole piece of meat is evenly cooked. And then what I do is I pull it out. I season it with maybe some more salt and pepper, some garlic salt. And I either throw it on the grill uh, for about a minute per side or, like, in a cast iron skillet just to get that sear on the outside of it that we're mm-hmm. all looking for. Um, and then it and then it's ready to eat. And it is the greatest meat ever. You can do it with steaks. Um, you know, beef steaks, you could cook chicken, pork, everything, but it's all perfectly done every time, 
like you don't need to be a chef to get great food out of this thing. And it's super easy cleanup because basically, I mean, your, your water bath, like I bought a plastic tub thing that it goes in, like you just dump the water out of that and then throw away the vacuum seal bag and that's it. And there's really no cleanup to it. And it's super, super simple. I'd recommend anybody out there that loves eating venison to pick up one of these machines and try it. They're freaking awesome. And is it, it's spelt S O U S V I D E. Is that, is that right? Correct. Yep. That's okay. correct. All right, yeah. I'm, I got I'm... mine on Amazon, like everything else I buy. <laughs> the, old, <laughs> the retail giant. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool though. Um, yeah, it's great, dude. I've been, I've been emptying the freezer out in preparation for the season. So I've been cooking a ton of venison here lately and I've been using that thing for all of it. It works phenomenal. Wow. And uh, Todd, Todd luckily shot an elk last night, so I was texting him this morning. I'm like, make sure you bring every square inch of meat back here because I'm, <laughs> I'm stealing a Your fair body. amount of it. <laughs> uh-huh. oh, I'm, I do miss my elk, having some elk meat in the freezer. I've got a little bit left from the cow that my buddy shot when we were out there last September, but that's dwindling, dwindling yeah. quickly. So yeah, it's great, man. I can bring that cooker here to the office where we don't really have anything to cook with. We got a little grill, but I can, you know, throw that, throw meat in that thing. When I get here in the morning and at lunchtime, it's ready to eat, throw it on the grill and let all the guys here at the office, you know, we got eight or 10 people here building websites and doing it work and whatnot. And I can expose all of them because none of them hunt. Todd and I are the only two hunters here. Um, so they get their, they get their venison fix. And like a lot of people, they're like, well, I've had venison before, you know, my, my cousin cooked some up one time and it was really pretty shitty. Right. I didn't like it, you know? <laughs> so then I'm like, all right, let me cook it for you the right way. And then they all eat it. And they're like, God, oh, this is phenomenal. You got any more? Oh, so, yeah. uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. Venison is one of those ultimate ways to open people's eyes to hunting. I think if they eat a good yeah. meal and they, they understand how it came to be, that is just like the ultimate olive branch to, to what we do and why we do it. I think so. Sure. Cooking it Definitely. well is so important. Yep. Well, we are we're running out on time here, um, so I guess I want to ask you one more question. I don't know, Dan, if you've got anything you want to jump in with here, but I'll, I'll just I'll ask you the converse of what I threw at you a little bit ago. I asked you what you struggle with the most. Now I want to know what do you think is your best attribute as a hunter? Hmm, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I, I guess maybe just the flip side of what my worst thing as a hunter is. You know, I've always not always, but over the last 10 years or so, I've, I've somehow found a knack for putting myself uh, in the situation to get close to a deer in daylight hours and give myself an opportunity to shoot it. Whether that's walking onto a brand new piece of property and scouting and hanging stands for the very first time or a property that I've hunted for a long time. There aren't many years that I go uh, where I don't have you know deer within shooting range. Good bucks. You know, whether I choose to pass that deer or I botch the shot, or I kill the animal, like, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty darn good at that. I don't know if some of it's just luck, but, uh, you know, I just, something about it. I and mean, that's, that's the thrill of the chase for me is, is as a bow hunter, being able to get in there and get, and get close to them. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty good hunter from that regard. I just need to get better at closing the deal when the, when the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I hear you. That, that chess match for me too, that, yeah. that's what I enjoy the most is, figuring out those little moves to make when to be in the right place at the right time and, and how to get all that to come together. There's nothing better yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. 
you know, a few years back, I mean, we're going back almost 10 years now. I don't know if you know if you guys remember, uh, there was this thing called the Campbell Outdoor Challenge. Do you guys remember that by any chance? I remember yeah. that. Yep. They had a TV show and essentially it was like a competition, right? So we did that two years in a row. And um, basically it was in southern Illinois. You show up and they would give you a piece of property to hunt. This was an outfitter. But then they would give you a map. And I mean, this was late October. And they'd say, here's your here's your piece of property. It's 150 acres. Go have fun. And you were thrown into a piece of property that you never hunted before. You've never stepped foot on. All you've got is a map. You got to go out, scout, hang stands, and you got, you know, four or five days to hunt. And, uh, you know, we were very, very fortunate um, that the two years we did it, uh, first year it was me uh, and actually a, a woman named Christine that used to do some some work with us. Her and I went. Um, we won it that year. Uh, I shot a good buck. Um, and then the following year, we went back kind of to, quote, unquote, defend our title, so to speak. Uh, my buddy Mike came with me, and we won it that year. Mike shot a really nice buck wow. on, the, on the first morning uh, that year. So I think that was kind of the turning point for me and, like, my style of hunting with the run and gun, a scout during the season, be able to figure out the sign, where the deer are at. Like, I really enjoyed that. It was a blast. I mean, we had it. I mean, there's just something about walking onto a piece of property for the first time and trying to figure it out. It's mm-hmm. intriguing as, as, as a bow hunter, uh, which is really kind of, you know, 10 years or almost 10 years later now, fast forward, like my trips to Kansas this fall are all going to be public land. Um, you know, we went in the spring and we scouted a little bit and did some turkey hunting. Um, but we have no idea what we're really walking into. But that's the intrigue. Like, I don't know what deer are there. I have no cameras. I have no history. I have nothing. Walking onto a piece of property, October 21st, scouting, hanging stands, and trying to kill deer. Uh, so I'm really, really excited to, to go down there this year. I feel like that type of situation maybe is a really good uh, quote-unquote test of your hunting abilities. You know, sometimes we get complacent on some of these properties we've hunted forever, and we know what the deer are going to do and where they're going to do it and when they're going to do it. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, that spot over there is pretty good. I'm going to go there now and shoot a deer. Um, something about this new property, hang, hunt, scout, uh, has really got me intrigued for this fall. So I'm hoping to have some success down there. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Learning those new places. That is, uh, the ultimate challenge and test I think as a hunter. So I keep on trying to put myself in new positions too, because I think not only does it test you, but you, whether you succeed or not in filling that tag, you, you learn stuff that makes you a better hunter no matter what. Um, so I think there's, there really is something to be said about putting yourself in new positions and, and figuring it out as you go. So, yep, absolutely. Well, Dan, do you have uh, final thoughts or any final questions for Justin? I think, uh, we need to collaborate on a book hunting with kids or something like that. I think that would be, <laughs> cause I, dude, I don't know about you, but I get like a lot of questions thrown my way about, Hey man, how do you juggle time? How do you balance time? And, uh, um, me and you are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, man. I tell you what. I mean, I I try to spend as much time with my kids as I can. Right. You know, especially during the off season. I mean, we're constantly doing something. Whether you know whether we're going swimming or going to the park or we're taking them to the zoo or whatever. Like I really because I know. I mean, for for as bad as it sounds, you know, a lot of us you know, we we hunt. I mean, we only have so much time to hunt during the fall and you know, we, we do prioritize that pretty high. So I try to, you know, do as much with my kids as I humanly can, um, without killing myself, uh, <laughs> since there's so many of them, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing, you know, and you gotta have a wife that's, 
going to be at least semi understanding. I know we all like to joke that, you know, they get pissed at us when we're gone hunting and whatever. And, and they do from time to time. So, I mean, it's, it's just smart to, <laughs> to realize that, you know, your, your marriage, your kids, your family, there, there are things that are, are more important than hunting as much as we like to joke about, about Absolutely. hunting kind of being the most important thing. So it's just realizing, you know, where to draw that line, realizing when your wife is like to that breaking point, And it's like, you know what? I don't really need to hunt tonight. Like I want to, like every bone in my body wants to go hunting right now, but the smart thing to do is to just stay home, whatever, take the kids trick or treating, do whatever, you know, and just cool your jets. Cause you know, I can go hunt tomorrow. Um, that's probably been the biggest learning curve for me is just getting adjusted to that. I can go do whatever I want, whenever I want. Uh, cause that's not, that's not reality anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I always though think of that song, you know, old Brad Paisley, where he's talking about his uh, his girlfriend or his wife. I can't remember which it was. <laughs> was was giving him the ultimatum. Said that if he goes bass fishing one more time, you know, she's hitting she's hitting the road. She's out the door, and then that chorus kicks in. He's just like, "Well, I'm gonna miss her." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta get yeah, in the that woods. Was before, <laughs> that was before kids. Yeah, that was pre yeah. pre kids for Brad. <laughs> Child supports way too much money to consider doing that. <laughs> it is a financial issue. You're right. <laughs> no, you guys are you guys are absolutely right, and I know I'm gonna be uh, experiencing these new things when I bring kids into play too. So I'm sure I'll be bugging you guys for advice as we go along. But uh, but Justin, thanks for joining us, and for people that want to see what you've got going on. Um, with bowhunting.com. I'd love to hear about where they can find stuff online with all your different deals. Sure. And then uh, tell us a little bit about Busted Rack, too. Yeah, sure. Well, for what we're doing at bowhunting.com, pretty simple, right? Bowhunting.com. For our show, uh, if you go to bowhuntordie.com, we'll bring you to our show page. Uh, check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Roku, all that stuff. Uh, as far as Busted Rack goes, you know, my buddy Mike and I decided for some crazy idea we were going to start our own business. Uh, a few months back. I'm not sure why we decided to do this, but uh, <laughs> we started a t-shirt business, just kind of making some, what we think are kind of cheeky humor, funny hunting related t-shirts. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you guys want to check that out, it's bustedrack.com. I think we've got some funny stuff. Not everybody shares my same sense of humor, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think we got some fun stuff going on over there. I really like the, I've killed more deer than CWD shirt. You know, it's really, <laughs> it's really fitting for here in Illinois and Wisconsin, where we're at. That's, That's kind of funny. my personal favorite shirt. Uh, after some of Todd's shooting here early this season, I don't know what he's got going on. I'm going to have to get him the Texas Heart Shot t-shirt. Because he he's he needs a little bit of help when he gets home, a little bit of archery coaching, <laughs> I, I think, when he gets back. He's had a little bit of a rough spell with pulling those shots, huh? Yeah, I think it's shooting from the ground. Uh-huh. Turkeys, antelope, and now elk, he's made less than desirable shots. You put him in a tree with a white tail in front of him, he's money every time. So I don't know. Maybe we just need to keep him in a tree from here on out. <laughs> That's good to know. Well, uh, we'll definitely put links to all that stuff in the blog post. Um, I've, I've gotten a kick out of some of your shirts too. So good stuff, Justin. Yeah, I got, I got one headed your way here shortly. Oh, awesome. I appreciate it. It's, is it my, uh, my nerdy shirt? It is your well. It's my nerdy shirt too. The October <laughs> is coming shirt. Like Heck who doesn't yeah. love Game of Thrones? I needed a Game of Thrones inspired shirt. Love Game so of Thrones. So we made one. <laughs> That's great. All right, Justin. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. And uh, man, I hope you shoot no that problem, big guys. one this year. Good luck. Thanks, man. If I do, I will definitely let you know. Awesome. 
And that's a wrap. But before we go, I've got a quick favor to ask. You know, usually at this point, I might ask you guys to leave a rating or review for the podcast on iTunes. But today I want to ask for something different. I'm curious if you might all be willing to give an in-person review for Wired to Hunt. And what I mean by this is if you enjoy this podcast, if you find it valuable, maybe today or tomorrow or this weekend, maybe you could just tell one new person about the Wired to Hunt podcast. Find find one of your hunting buddies who doesn't listen yet and tell them why you think that maybe they should and how this podcast might help them. If you do that, man, I would be forever grateful. So thanks in advance. And speaking of thanks, I want to give a big thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, thank you all for listening. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your support. And if you're hunting this weekend, good luck out there. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.